Welcome to the Maharat Cast. My name is Rabba Ramey Smith. I'm your host coming to you from London. This episode is a really special one, and I know I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it, because I'm constantly blown away at how awesome the people I'm interviewing are. Today's guest is Rabbanit Bracha Jaffe. She's currently the Associate Rabbah at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. She's a life coach, a pastor, a wonderful, thoughtful, and insightful halachic mind, and she is a dear, dear friend. I'm so excited to welcome Rabbanit Bracha Jaffe to talk about her experience as a life coach, as a Rabbanit, and generally as one of the most positive people I've ever met. Rabbanit Bracha, tell me a bit about you and how you ended up at Maharat. My name is Bracha Jaffe. I use the title Rabbanit, which speaks a lot to my feeling half Israeli, half American, or both Israeli and both American. Born in Boston, grew up at a wonderful shtibol called the Basna Rebbe's which really informed my love of shul and ritual and my shul skills and synagogue knowledge. I went to Israel for high school and stayed there most of my life, came back to America for a couple of years, met my first husband who went to MIT and we made Aliyah. We raised our children there in Israel. They're all there. My four children and seven grandchildren live in Israel as well. And I had a long career in high tech. I was in software. Being a rabbi really was never even close to being on my radar, but I was always very bought in and more knowledgeable than most women my age when midrashot were not a thing. And always loved going to shiurim and knew what was going on in the shul. Even became a gabait in my datilumi slash modern orthodox shul in Ranana, which is unusual for a woman became the spokes, the voice, the spokesperson for the women. Anything from opening the windows when it was too hot to telling the gabaim to make sure to speak louder so we could hear what they say, and even picking chazanim for the chagim together with them. But somewhere along my professional career in software, I started feeling unsatisfied, and I didn't know what I was looking for. So I tried a few different things. I couldn't step off my track in software because I was the main breadwinner. But I started doing other things. A course opened in Ranana to teach women how to lane. I was around 40 at the time, and my inspiration was Rabbi Akiva, who learned how to read Hebrew at age 40. And I said, I could learn how to lane at age 40. And as soon as I started, I just loved it. I loved it. Practiced every single night, and I joined a women's tefillah, immediately became part of the leadership. I started teaching girls for their bat mitzvah had a lane and became a go-to person in Ranana for girls who wanted to do something a little bit more ritualistic, have a little bit more meaning from that point of view, whether it was teaching them how to lane or talking about other ways to connect to our tradition. And I started giving shirim slowly. I was asked here, I was asked there. I became a facilitator for mother-daughter bat mitzvah programs. And yet I was still feeling unsatisfied and still working in high tech and still searching for something. And along the way, for various reasons, I also became a life coach, which all of these things together, I would say, are pieces of what it means to be a rabbi. But still, rabbi was very far from my radar. And then I had an opportunity about eight years ago to come to the States. My circumstances changed a few months after I came to America, and I didn't need to be on the main breadwinner path, but I still didn't know what to do with that. 
And then a few months later, I'll never forget the day. It was on Shabbat, Rabbi Sarah Horowitz. She saw me in Shul. She gotten to know me a little bit. She walked out of Shul Shabbat morning. I was standing and talking to a woman without saying hello to anybody, without even saying hello to me. She looked me in the eye and she said, Bracha, have you ever thought of going to Shabbat Maharat? And the second she said that, it was just me and Rabbi Sarah and a Tsohar, a light, a shaft of light that opened between me and God. The whole world just fell away. And I knew in every fiber of my being that that was what I wanted to do. And I came home that day and my husband said, why are you on fire? What happened? And I said, I have an opportunity to do something that lights my soul on fire. The choice was obvious. The timing was perfect. Because when opportunity presents itself, if you're not available, you can't even see that opportunity. It just goes right by you. But when availability meets opportunity, it's an amazing confluence. And that's why I was able to go to Yeshivat Maharat. Somebody saw that in my soul. I don't think I recognized it until people saw it in me. And that's, that's when God sends angels who can do that. I just want to name something that's really special about Rabbanit Bracha and a certain group of Maharat students and graduates. Rabbanit Bracha didn't leave her job because she was unhappy or unsuccessful at it. She was at the top of her game leading a big team in high tech. Rabbanit Bracha's jump to Maharat after 30 years working in an industry where she was incredibly successful was not as easy as, say, mine was, because I didn't give up a decades-long career to start yeshiva. She followed her soul to the yeshiva. And that's not to say that I didn't follow my soul or many of the other students didn't follow their souls. We all followed our souls. But the stakes are a lot higher when you're leaving a 30-year-long career. And I find this to be so inspiring, not just in Rabbanit Bracha, but in all of the students and graduates who left or took time away from another successful career to follow their souls to Maharat. Thank you. And I think it's important for us to listen to our souls, to listen to what's going on inside. I was feeling an unsettledness, a discomfort, an unsatisfied feel after 15 years in software, and it slowly grew and grew. And I continued with my career because I had to and because I liked it. But I did listen to that inner voice so that when the opportunity presented itself, I was able to hear the voice and I knew that it felt right. I wanted to know if the ability to identify something that's missing or to follow one's soul comes from Rabbanit Bracha's experience as a life coach. But before she answered this, I asked her to delve a little bit into life coaching so we can better understand this work. I'm very passionate about life coaching. Coaching in general is about listening to the other person and helping the client find the answers within themselves. And that requires a third ear to be awakened so that you can really hear the nuance and find the ways to get in between and empower the person who came to you to make a change, find the ways to make that change by tapping into ways they have been able to in the past, by hearing exactly where they're stuck. They may come with a question, but that's not the real question. They may say, well, how can I do X? But really the question is, what is keeping me from taking the next step to doing X? Coaching is about using our past to empower ourselves for the future. What's the difference between coaching and therapy? Therapy, first of all, is a different kind of training, much longer training. And in fact, when we discern that somebody has a more serious 
underlying condition or syndrome, we absolutely as coaches know to refer these people to somebody who is trained to help. So a coach is not going to resolve depression or anxiety and cannot prescribe medication or anything like that. A therapist looks backwards into the person's life very deeply. A coach is much more short-term and actually is poised to look at the future. We only use the past as much as we can. We touch, we touch into it a little bit. We tap, we dip in, we guide the, our clients to tap in, but more from a place of how to move on rather than undoing and taking apart deep-seated issues from the past. Just from when I've done coaching with you, I remember it was very specific and there was one issue you work on at a time, which I found the neatness to that to be very refreshing and very um, helpful in focusing. Right. So that's, I think that coaching, a great way to say is what you said, that it's focused. Coaching is very focused. Now it can be focused into a one-time thing. Like I have a very specific question or a decision I'm trying to make. So one of the things that a coach is an example might one of the things a coach might do is lead the person along each path until that person can figure out, does this path suit them? And then lead them down another path so that they can figure out how to make their decision. But coaching is also a little bit larger than just one single focus. It can be three months, maybe 10 sessions or 15. And that's about realizing a dream. When somebody has a dream, so it's about defining the dream, describing it and finding ways to get there. But that still is short term and focused. How did you get into coaching? I think I always had one part of it inside of me, which is the true deep listening, the deep listening and deep caring. But coaching, learning how to, learning coaching, and I did a a full academic year in Barilan University to learn how to be a coach and go through practicum, teaches many tools to put in our toolbox. And the most important thing for me was it awakened what I said before. It awakens a third ear inside of me. Once it awakens that third ear, that ear can never go away. It's impossible for it to go away. But I had to actively turn that off during certain classes so that I wouldn't be so attuned to what other people were going through. But that amazing third ear, when you hear so much more deeply what people say, where are they stumbling? Where do their voices catch? Where do their eyes light up with passion? And This can even be on the phone. It's not even necessarily seeing it. One can hear it in the nuance of the voice. One can see it also in body movements and hear it in the hesitations and the kinds of answers. There's something so powerful about that. And that's that's what coaching is about. 15 years ago, I had never heard of coaching or I'd heard of it, but had no clue what it was other than maybe a basketball coach. What happened was that over time, people turned to me people particularly who were struggling with differences in religious denominations or where they fell religiously on the spectrum or where people in their family were in different places religiously because I had number of people in my family, my immediate family, my extended family who were all in different places. And it somehow became known or people heard that I was able to resolve that, be able to get along and find ways to integrate us and accept the other as they were. And other people were struggling in ways that they didn't know how to resolve. They didn't know how to live with children who changed their religious views or partners. And people started turning to me, but almost random people started turning to me who heard about it through various ways. And after a while, I remember saying to myself, 
Thank you, Hashem, for giving me skills and tools to listen. And thank you for whatever siyata dishmai, whatever help you give me in the moments, God. But I feel like I need more. I need real tools, but I wasn't able to step off the path of software and go get a psychology degree. That just wasn't an option for me. So I searched for a year. I asked all different people who I felt were doing this kind of work. I asked people and I said, what can I do until somebody Friday night after show, it was a rabbi, he was a rabbi of a very small yeshiva. And I said, I see that you're a couples therapist. Can I speak to you? And he said, sure. And he told me that he had studied in addition to being a rabbi and in yeshiva, he decided to study couples therapy because the boys in his yeshiva were coming to him with questions, said I could help them with their halachic questions, but I couldn't help them with their pastoral questions. I didn't know very much. So he went and he got a bachelor's and then a master's in it. And I said to him, well, I can't do that. I can't step off the path because I don't have that luxury. I just don't have that opportunity. He said, but you can, you can become a coach. And I said to him, what's a coach? <laughs> so he said in a few words what it was. And he said, I think you should look into it. And I came home. That was another time in my life. Like I, I came home on fire from Shul. <laughs> Both times it was from Shul. And my husband said, he said, okay, you're very late and your eyes are blazing. What happened? I said, I can help people. I can actually help people. I have a way that I can keep my job, keep the things that I do. But I can learn how to help people. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> and then it took me another six months at least to research where, what, learn what it was. One person led to another, led to another. And I ended up with this really excellent program called the Osmot Group. I'm, I'm really just so beholden to them for the kind of training they gave me. How do you know when to switch hats from coaching to being a rabbinite? Do you have to switch hats how do you juggle two hats is really what I'm asking. I don't think that they're all separate hats. I think separate hats come into play differently. When you're with a friend, you're going to be less of a coach because unless that person asks you or you feel there's a problem and you offer services, it's just a friendship and you let your hair down, you let your guard down, you, you kind of take off all your hats actually. As a rabbi in a congregation, I try to always be attuned to the congregants. I think that my coaching ear is always there. It's always there. It's always, thank God, going to be there. It's always available and accessible. But I judge the situation. Is this the right time for me to step in? As a friend, I could be walking and talking with a friend and feeling like that person could perhaps use a little bit of coaching. In fact, I have a sister who's a coach, so sometimes we call it, we need some sistering. So we we need a short coaching session with each other, with each other, what you call it, sistering. So I decide, is this an appropriate time? Is this person turning to me for pastoral help? In which case, my coaching ear is there. It's not a full coaching process. That's different. The coaching ear, that third ear that hears where the little nuances, where can I help this person? Drawing on my experience, drawing on things I've heard from others, and drawing on what I have heard from that person, because a lot of coaching is reflecting back gathering the bits and pieces that the person said and reflecting it back to the person. I don't think it's about switching hats. I think it's about when is the appropriate time, the way we all judge situations. So that has to do with whatever space you're in. Is the person just relating something to you or is the person asking for your help or is it just opening up and sharing and then I'll file that away for another time. But the coaching ear is part of every single hat that I own. One of the things I didn't know about life coaching when I started to do some work with Rabbanit Bracha 
is that coaching is not about fixing a problem. It's about helping the person get to where they want to get to. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The idea is to really empower the person to do that themselves. In fact, as coaches, you learn that what you think, you're thinking like, oh, this person just has to do it in your mind. Person just has to do X and they'll be fine. But that's what you're thinking. That's not necessarily what's right for that person. I mean, unless you've learned it about that person because you know them well. And it's funny what you said about not fixing, because sometimes my kids say to me, Ima, stop being a coach. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> and I almost always say, no, I don't think so. I'm not taking responsibility if it doesn't come out well. Ah, of course, sometimes I will. But and and one thing I've really learned over the years, and this is something that I learned in Maharaj, unless somebody specifically says to me, I, I would like your help. What is your suggestion? Can you, can you think about that? Can you suggest? I will ask the person. I have a thought, would it be all right to share? I know that you didn't ask me for advice, so I don't want to give advice where it's not welcome, and that is totally fine with me. I had a thought, would it be okay if I share with you? And that's a way of giving permission to open the conversation perhaps a little further. This episode is brought to you by My Tadaka Fund. Have you ever scrolled through Facebook or your emails and gotten a notification that your friend is running a marathon, asking you to donate to some organization to support them? You obviously make the donation, but then you get the sinking feeling in your stomach because you realize that you haven't donated to causes that you actually care about, the ones you're passionate about in a while. You might even realize you haven't been keeping track of your Maser requirements or given consistently and authentically at all. Well, My Tadaka Fund is here to help you donate to all the causes you love on an automated monthly basis. You can set up your giving one time and become a monthly supporter of the causes you are passionate about. You create your own fund by choosing your causes, choosing a monthly amount that works for you, and your tzedakah will be automated for you, just like your Netflix subscription. Of course, you can always update and customize as you grow. My tzedakah is here to solve all of your tzedakah needs. And the best part, 100% of your tzedakah goes directly to the charities. Set up your tzedakah fund today and get $36 added to your fund if you use the code MAHARAT at checkout. I'll say that again. Set up your tzedakah fund today and get $36 added to your fund if you use the code MAHARAT at checkout. What are some questions people can ask themselves to get themselves through a difficult situation or a difficult decision? I do say that self-coaching is really, really difficult. It's easy for us to hide the answers from ourselves, not on purpose. It's just so easy to start getting into a whirlpool of, I don't know, and back and forth. Even if you didn't have a coach to speak to, trying to lay out the pieces in front of somebody else, discussing really taking apart the story and perhaps going down one path and then coming back to the beginning and going down the other path and say, well, when you actually get to the end of the path to take a moment and say, how will I feel from one to 10 to six? Great. Go back to the beginning, go to the other path and like feeling seven and a half. Sometimes that's the answer. And another really good tip, it's not a, a specific coaching tip, but it works really well to say afterwards, which will I be more sorry that I missed? Because if you ask yourself ahead of time, you want to go to both. So it's very hard to discern which one is more important to you. But if you say, well, I'll always be sorry if I missed X, but if I miss Y, I'll get over it. That'll be a helpful way to frame that kind of decision. 
This idea of helping people find what they need is so much a part of who Rabbani Bracha is. She's also, hands down, the most positive person I have ever met, but not in a way that's frustrating to be around or off-putting, in an infectious way that invites others into her light. I wanted to know if she was always like that. <sighs> really making me stop and think. I would say that I definitely had seeds of it even as, as a young girl. I had some seeds of it, but they definitely matured and grew. I learned resilience and adaptability from leaving home pretty early and going to Israel for high school, which I loved, but I didn't love at the beginning because I didn't really know Hebrew. <laughs> and falling in love with Israel, but being far away from family and going to people's homes for Shabbat and for vacation. There were all different kinds of people. So I really, really learned how to adapt and get along and enjoy. Over time, I have discovered that it gives me joy to give other people joy. It really energizes me to make other people feel good about themselves or about others. And it's easy to pick on the negative things. It's easy to complain. But giving people feedback about themselves or their children, whether it's the way they're dressed or the way they make me feel or something else positive, it feels like such an easy way to make somebody feel better about themselves that I can't imagine not doing it. It feels so good to me when somebody else feels better. Now, I, to me, that speaks to what it means for me to be a rabbi. Because being a rabbi for me is being there for the other person and connecting with them. And that's anywhere from listening to somebody being a chaplain in a hospital and helping them find some relief from the, from the indecision or the pain or the angst that they're going through. It can be teaching Torah in a way that's inspiring to people. It can be smiling. Okay, a little harder during COVID. It can be giving stickers to kids. Why do I give stickers to kids? Because it makes them laugh. Makes me laugh, but also makes them laugh. And it connects me with them. That connection is what gives me more joy than anything else. So a wonderful way to connect with someone is to make them feel good about themselves and remind them that they're special. There's a spark of God in everybody. And it's so easy for people to be pulled down. It's so easy. I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I didn't this, do this well. I'm not recognized. How wonderful to bring a smile to somebody's face just by saying, you make me happy to see you. In classic Rabbanit Bracha fashion, she just made it about making other people happy. So I decided to push her a bit on her own happiness. She has overcome some big things in her life. And I really think the reason she came through with more strength and perspective is because of her positivity in search for the good in life. I wanted her to tell me more about that. I want to actually, thank you. I want to respond to something that actually I've given this some thought. I asked myself, because I have gone through really difficult things objectively. And of course, almost everybody has. And I, I agree that overall I've retained positivity and a positive outlook while throwing in some realism. So I think that part of it is a blessing from God that God blessed me with a well of positivity and resilience that I often can just dip into. And Baruch Hashem, it's something I thank God for. Some people are born with more of that positivity available to them and energy. I have a lot of emotional energy and even physical energy. And that definitely helps. And I also draw my energy from connection with people. But here's what happens. And I thought back about times when I was really pulled down. And then I moved into a new situation with other people or another setting. And I became 
more attuned to the moment. And anytime I really put myself in the moment, I'm able to, for a while at least, leave what has, I've been struggling with outside those windows, outside just for a moment, shed it as I step into that new situation and actually tap in to the positivity of that moment. Being in the moment, any moment I'm in, whatever it is, leaving one moment and going to the next one, but really being fully present for that moment. When I'm fully present in that moment, then the other parts of my life can go on a back burner. And then that brings me to a new place when I go back into the difficult parts. So that's where I get my energy from. Unlike Rabbanit Bracha, I, and I'm assuming many of you, were not born with that same positivity. It's something we can work on and grow into. I asked Rabbanit Bracha if she could give us some advice on how to achieve a more positive outlook and if it's all about faking it till you make it. There is a fake it till we make it thing. It's, it's actually proven scientifically that smiling makes us feel better, make, make the people around us feel better. I, I would encourage people to work on tapping into the moment and appreciating and enjoying what is right now. And a good example of that is in Israel, which went through so many periods of, how do you say pigolim in English? Terror attacks. Yeah, there were terror attacks and tragedies in the middle, midst of all of that. People were dancing at weddings with true joy because they were able to tap into the moment. In fact, that's the lesson from Kohelet is to appreciate life in the moment. But you're asking what people can do. So first of all, I think the first thing I would say is find somebody to share. Holding secrets within us so pull us down, so weigh us down. And there's something about sharing your burden with someone else, even if they don't have a suggestion for you, even if there is no fix somehow lightens that load a little bit. It could be a friend, it could be a family member, it could be an old friend that you pick up on and say, are you available? I could use 15 minutes of listening. I think that's something that can be helpful. And then of course, if you have pastoral figures in your life who are available for you, I, want, I would invite people to take a breath and loosen those constricting ties that keep us from sharing with others. There's something about sharing that's very, very powerful. I've also found that music is very helpful to me in my darkest moments. I found songs that helped me connect with the dark places and lift me out at the same time. I don't know, you could speak to a coach. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov actually, it's so funny because I just wrote about this in my drasha, about simcha, simcha. When Adar begins the month of Purim, we should increase our joy, simcha, simcha. Well, how do we do that? One of the suggestions by the Baal Shem Tov is that he believes it's a mitzvah, it's a biblical commandment to find the joy and positivity in every experience that we have. So not can't do it with everything, but you can do it once, and you can do it again another time, and every time you do it adds one little extra bead of positivity I decided to end our conversation with a moment of reflection and gratitude by asking her what are some of the greatest gifts she got from her time at Yeshivat Maharat. First of all, just tremendous knowledge of halakha, of putting together the history of how halakha evolves over the years, feeling comfortable and fluent in the different sarim. Yeah. And also, one of the huge things for me is something I think I got from really well, I mean, I think you taught it well, is modeling that there are different values. And I often speak about that. I say that. 
there are values within Judaism and sometimes we need to balance the values. It's not all black and white. It just isn't. Yeah. That's why you sometimes keep a minority opinion because if you have, first of all, it's first of all, give weight to the minority opinion that they also have value and validity, but it's also so that when you have another value that comes to play, whether the value is have said mamon or quoted Sibor or obviously illness, you know, obviously we always take that off the table if somebody's in danger of life or even illness or not feeling well, whatever it is, when you have other values, Onik Shabbat, those are the main ones, I think. So we speak about that a lot and I, I really appreciate that. And allowing nuance in halacha, but also I would say, even though I had a lot of pastoral skills going in, I got so much more. Like the Yomi Yunan addiction was huge for me. I, I didn't know about it. LGBTQ, huge. And how to react in situations, how to slow things down. You know how Esther always says that? I hear that all the time in my head. Let's slow it down a little bit. And I do that for myself and I do that for others. One second, let's slow it down. Let's go back to where you were a minute ago. I want to hear that again. I want to. So it's part coaching, I agree. But, and also, I think Maharan did a really good job of bringing random Jewish people that had what to teach us, not standing on, are you Orthodox and are you exactly towing the line? That wasn't, you know, that we have so much to learn from other denominations, other people, people who have gifts to bring to our knowledge, to our Judaism. They would just introduce us to so many people like that and others. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with Rabbanit Bracha. Please rate this podcast, send us your comments, engage with us. We'd love to hear what you think. And don't forget to check out all the other amazing episodes of the Maharat cast. Mm-hmm.